Welcome back, creeps. Hey. <laughs> how are you this week? Oh, that's the second time you've ever asked me how I am. <laughs> not, not ever. Like. <laughs> On the pod. Really? Yeah. Okay. I remember the first time you asked me, I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Many moons ago. <laughs> well, how I, are you? Um... Gosh, I mean, I don't even know how to answer the question. You kind of put me on the spot there. I just wasn't expecting Good. it. Um, I guess shocked. That's how <laughs> I am. <laughs> no exciting news this week or anything? Um, no. Good. Good. <laughs> I haven't gotten any new makeup, no new clothes. Work has been really busy lately. Right on. Our Patreon of the week this week is Angela. Happy Patreon, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Angela. Thank you for all your support. We love all of our patrons. We love all of our listeners dearly. But yeah, we very much appreciate it. And if you want to get a weekly shout out or a once in a while shout out, join our Patreon. Yeah. Um, and we'll do it. Yeah, we got a lot of bonus stuff on there right now. We'll More fucking stuff do coming. it very very soon in fact in like two days yeah we'll have this week we have an extra weekly creep and then we're gonna we, we try to like rotate it so one week you'll have an extra episode the next you'll have an extra video mm -hmm. sometimes there's more sometimes there's less it's whatever have a look on there there's a buttload of stuff anyway yeah so this week i'm gonna talk about something very near to my heart rock and roll baby all right yeah I decided I was going to do famous rock star hauntings. Oh, sick. Yeah. So these are, for the most part, these are rock stars who have experienced hauntings. And are they real rock stars or do you use the term loosely? No, they're like, the very first story is Alice Cooper. Sick. Alice Cooper and Joe Perry. Nice. Yeah. So I think this, like, I got really excited as soon as I started writing this because it's like, Picture this scene, right? Yeah. 1983. Alice Cooper and Joe Perry. Joe Perry is the guitar player from Aerosmith. Alice Cooper is Alice Cooper. <laughs> Both fresh out of rehab, they decide to get together to write music for an upcoming film soundtrack. Okay, which one? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> but Alice's manager sets them up in this old house in upstate New York. Okay nice and remote because like this is back in real rock and roll times when the managers literally had to separate them from like telephones and other drug users and stuff oh like this is how the managers protected their own money yeah yeah you know yeah so off they went alice and joe to record music up in this bitching ass mansion and it's like in the middle of farmland there's no neighbors no nothing mm -hmm. and a quote from Mr. Alice says, I'm putting my clothes away. I leave the room and come back and the closet door is closed. Okay. The drawer I was packing was is also closed. Hmm. I don't remember closing that. The house was so full of whatever that on the second night we're there, we're sitting there and eating dinner and it sounds like someone is moving furniture in the basement. Oh. It's making so much noise. It's not even trying to be subtle. He tells Joe Perry what had happened to him the night before with his closet and all that. 
And it turns out that Joe had been experiencing the exact same shit. Oh, wow. Cooper went on to say, we ran out of the place. <laughs> I found out later that this is where the guy who wrote the Amityville Horror actually wrote the story. Ah. There in that house. He rented the house to go and write. Yeah. So, yeah, that was I'm sure there's more fucking creepy tales from Alice Cooper, but that's one of them. That's really cool. I'm glad that it started off real like strong. I was like thinking like, oh, a list of rock stars. I feel like he's going to start talking about Chad Kroger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like the replacement bass player for fucking what's that butterfly song crazy town crazy town yeah <laughs> dj am or something yeah i think that's who that is oh really shifty shell shock is the other one. Oh, for fuck's sake <laughs> so some of these stories are like little nice little bursts like that one yeah some are a little bit longer but anyway the next one is Corey taylor Frontman of Slipknot. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I know who that is. So he has apparently had like a quite lot. a few paranormal Tell me experiences. About Corey. Um, like He's throughout his life. We're real good uh, friends. <laughs> <laughs> so from like hearing random footsteps walking up behind him in his house and mm -hmm. turning and there's no one there to thermoses flying across his kitchen. Wow. Completely at random. Maybe they're but, excited to be around such talent. Maybe. They're like, it's Corey Taylor. <laughs> oh, and shit, he took his mask shit. off. <laughs> <laughs> They're throwing shit at him just everywhere. Yeah. This is his cup. Oh, shit, I dropped it. And Corey's like, oh, my God. <laughs> There's hot soup everywhere. It's a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, one of Corey's earliest experiences sounds like the most cliche thing, but... There's a reason why <laughs> cliches are cliche to okay. begin with. How many times are you going to say cliche? Cliche, cliche, cliche. <laughs> so there was this old abandoned house in his like neighborhood when they were growing up. Yeah. And it was like nicknamed the cold house. Uh-huh. Corey and a bunch of his friends decided to go check it out. I think they were like in around 16, 15, 16. And he says, quote, we were all standing on the first floor of this place. It was two stories. And this thing came down the stairs at us. Wow. It was the silhouette of a man that was kind of backlit in a way from its own energy. It came down the stairs at us. We flipped out, killed ourselves running from the house. <laughs> my leg went through the rotted wood on the <gasps> front porch and Ooh. I still have a scar on my shin. Oh, shit. Yeah, right? Yeah. But apparently he wrote a book. I, he might have written multiple by now. I don't know. But he goes into a lot more detail in his book oh. i think yeah the one thing i was reading said that he actually used the book to try and come to terms with all of his experiences what? paranormal and not yeah yeah wow we, hey you know what we should do get the book get the book <laughs> and pair well like tell the story like share Corey's story on the patreon yeah i mean maybe uh i don't know i don't know how in depth it goes or anything like that but that's what the article said so the next story. I'm writing this down on the to-do list. <laughs> the guys from My Chemical Romance. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to lie. I'm not very familiar with their stuff. When I was growing up, yeah. I was much more into like Old. 80s rock and roll. And Old like rock, yeah. even older. Yeah, 60s, 70s rock and roll. Yeah. So 
even the Foo Fighters, who now I will say are my favorite band. Mm hmm. I wouldn't even listen to them when I was in high school because I was way too cool for that. Yeah. What a fucking idiot. It, yeah, that sucks <laughs> that we... Well, you know what? I think it has a lot to do with the people we surround ourselves with because if you get one person that you think is cool and they tell you, don't listen to these new wave shit, then yeah. you're probably not going to listen to it because... True. But I think I was that person because everybody else oh, was listening to No, I, ha I remember <laughs> had a, I had a boyfriend in high school. He used to always talk shit about... Um, that new rock and roll, yeah, man. <laughs> anything that wasn't like death metal or black metal, mm. and uh, so unfortunately, I missed out on a lot of like really good music that came out when I was in, still in high school. Yeah, um, but I remember listening to My Chemical Romance, like one song from them, and thinking it was really good, and I was like kind of ashamed for liking it. <laughs> Always the same, yeah. Like for years. Like, I'm a big Eminem fan, too, right? It's, like, yeah. the only rap music that I really ever listen to. Well, he's he's really talented, too. No, 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 I know. But I'm sure there's actual rap fans out there who are like, oh, man, like, that's such bullshit. But I couldn't, like, I stopped listening to him for years. So I was like, that's rap. I can't listen to that. I only listen to rock and roll, baby. Yeah. Anyway, the guys from My Chemical Romance say that their Black Parade album, and actually, shout out to my tattoo artist from back home because that whole shop i'm pretty sure they were all fans of my chemical romance and they kind of made me realize hold on these people are really cool and they listen yeah, to yeah and you know what that that's actually the first song i heard from them the black Parade. okay okay yeah anyway sorry back to the fucking story again <laughs> i feel like this whole episode might be a little bit like this yeah because we were music fans yeah so they say that their black parade album was actually cursed Tell yeah. me more. They even got t-shirts made for themselves just when it was finally done saying, I survived the Black Parade. <laughs> wow. While recording, the house slash studio they were living in had doors open and slammed shut on their own, like randomly day and night, and just had like this really somber, serious atmosphere. Like it just seemed to hang over the whole place the entire time they were there. That's amazing. Mikey Way who is the bass player, mm -hmm. who I think might actually be the lead singer's brother. Okay. Again, I learned all this today. <laughs> he switched rooms. He was like, say he was on the third floor. Yeah. Apparently that was where all of the action was. Oh. And he didn't just switch rooms. He actually left that floor and was like, yeah, I'm going to stay down here with uh, Jared, who was, I think, his brother. And eventually the whole fucking band just like got the fuck out before they even finished wow yeah so a lot of the times i don't know how common or not it is these days it's really like way back in the day mm -hmm. bands would just rent a house with a big studio in it and they would go for months and it just seemed like this magical music making experience yeah so anyway that's what these guys were trying to do and it just got so bad that they were like fuck this where so out. was it like that when they moved in or did it happen after they started i think it was like already a haunted oh, fucking okay. place but even when they left bad shit just kept on happening oh. while filming a video for famous last words mm -hmm. the guitarist frank lero mm -hmm. accidentally jumped on the singer jared way causing him to tear ligaments in his ankle what the fuck also while filming this video the drummer, Bob Breyer, caught his leg on fire. 
that, right? So obviously, that rhymed. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not even how I wrote this. I'm just getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Bob Breyer's leg caught fire, causing second and third degree burns, which got infected, and he eventually got gangrene. Oh, like, that's bad. Who gets gangrene in this day and age? No you know one. I mean? With like rockstar health insurance. You know wow. I mean? So then they went on tour. Did he lose anything? No, I think he was like he got all better oh, eventually. But wow. Well, they, when they went on tour for the album, Briar then also injured his wrist. He's a fucking drummer. That sucks. Yeah. Several members of the band and crew got food poisoning, causing them to cancel six shows on this very same tour. Oof. And the guitarist who jumped on the singer earlier yeah. had to leave the tour because he got so sick at one point. Dude, that's got like the cancel shows. That's got to suck for the fans. Major, right? Yeah. And oh, sorry, that that was it. That was all that happened. Uh, the guitarist left the tour and then came back later to like finish more shows. Cool. But yeah, so they're convinced that like that house specifically cursed them for that whole fucking tour. Wow. So then onto some real heavy metal fucking stories, right? Okay. Well, heavy metal people telling brief stories. Is it Cannibal Corpse? Oh, God, no, I couldn't even. I'd say they have some fucking stories to tell. Yeah, I'd say so. Probably more in the true crime genre. Oh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Anyway, Kirk Weinstein, right? Or Weinstein, maybe? Okay. I think it's Weinstein. So he's a metal guitarist. I'm not going to lie. I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. But he was in the band Down, whose singer is Phil Anselmo from Pantera. Okay. So I saw Phil Anselmo. I was like, dead. I don't remember Down, uh, but I do remember people in high school wearing really faded shirts that said Down on them. Really? And I'm just like, well, I wonder who that is. And they'd have long hair and they look like they smoked cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big Pantera vibes, right? Yeah. And yeah, I looked into like the list of bands. There was like so many little side projects that these two guys worked on as well. So uh-huh. anyway, like I said, I'll admit, I don't know all that much of the metal scene, but... What I know for sure is Pantera are and were some of the hardest partiers out there. Yeah. Like from other band stories that I've read, uh-huh. like where they come into contact with Pantera and it's just fucking mayhem. Anyway, this Weinstein guitarist, dude, big metal looking guy. He was staying over at Phil Anselmo's house one night drinking and listening to music. When they get a knock at the door and Phil like... It's like middle of the night uh-huh. and I'm pretty sure this is like a country house. So they get up, they go and open the door. Nobody there. Quote, I went back and sat in the chair. And when I did, I happened to glance over my right shoulder and there's a doorway there. I saw somebody walk down the hall real quick. Hmm. It's weird because back then we used to crash at Phil's because it's almost like he didn't want to be there alone. Hmm. Weinstein didn't leave and in his own words said, I didn't want them to make fun of me. So oh. I just drank more beer and I was fine. <laughs> I'm not afraid of no ghost. Don't make fun of me. <laughs> if oh, they're what? real, I don't think they can really hurt you. But anyway, I just thought it was like even funnier because the Pantera boys are known to be such like cowboy rockers and like, yeah, you know, yeah. big heavy fucking drinking dudes. And this guy looked the part like, yeah, yeah. but he was still just like, oh, better not say anything in case the guys <laughs> make fun of me. <laughs> Anyway, this next story is a little bit closer to to my kind of style of music. 
Black Sabbath, baby. Nice. They recorded the 1973 album Sabbath Bloody Sabbath in Clearwell Castle in Wales. Mm-hmm. Google Clearwell Castle real quick. While they were there, they were using the armory in, I think it was in the basement of the castle to rehearse. And Tony Iommi, who's the guitarist, said, quote, One night I was walking down the corridor with Ozzy. We saw this figure in a black cloak. I said, Who's that? And Ozzy said, oh, I don't know. We followed this figure back into the armory and there was absolutely no one there. Whoever it was had just disappeared into thin air. Wow. But in my head, I'm picturing like 1973 Ozzy Osbourne just like <laughs> out of his head. I don't know. <laughs> it's like such a fucking like, do you remember? His hair and everything. Yeah. yeah but yeah. it's like uh, that character on Wayne's World. Do you remember? Like oh. the old dude with the long hair. So Ozzy said he wouldn't go on stage that night unless he had... Was it 600 brown M&M's in a brandy glass? <laughs> <laughs> that Clearwell Castle that you mentioned um, had a recording studio in it. Um, Black Sabbath did use it. Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Bad Company, and Queen used yeah, to record right. there. But did you see the picture of it? It looks like a regular castle, It yeah. looks fucking cool. Anyway, it I only... It looks like it's actually well-kept, because like how you mentioned, there's a lot of castles in Europe, but not all of them are kept well. Yeah, well, the actual owners still live yeah. in that castle it's as well. It's privately owned, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Tony Iommi went on to say that the people who owned the castle were well aware of the ghost, ah. uh, which was a surprise to the band. <laughs> they did have some fun with this, though. The, the band did. Uh-huh. Tony said... We spent the rest of the time trying to frighten each other by rigging up all these devices. <laughs> In the end, we were all petrified and we had to drive home every night rather than stay there. That defeated the object of it all. <laughs> um, Geezer Butler, who is the bassist from Black Sabbath, he says like back in the day he was really into like Crowleyan magic and Satanism and stuff like that. You know, like You mean Crowley? Crowleyan magic, yeah, I don't know how... You said Crowley. Crowleyan? Oh. Yeah. Like, big into his black magic, Satanism. Yeah. But, like, before, not Temple of Satanic Worship, Satanism. This was heavily influenced by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Okay. That kind of black magic. Oh, yeah. Do as you will. So, yeah, definitely Crowleyan. Yeah, oh, big time. Yeah. And, anyway, like, this is what black sabbath were known for back then like Mm -hmm. even just the name black sabbath put fear into people Mm -hmm. in the late 60s early 70s because like no that's anti-church yeah but he was the real fucking deal yeah butler was um he wrote in liner notes for a sabbath's reunion cd because when cds were a thing any of you who have never possibly owned one Mm mm-hmm they used to have little booklets in it, which would be full of fucking information yes. that you would sit and you would read all the lyrics yes. and all the, these nice stories from the band. See, the cool thing about the booklets that people miss out on nowadays is, I mean, sure, you could look up lyrics on lyrics.com and, and, and it's a very generic website with very plain text on a plain background. Yeah. Or you can Wikipedia your favorite artist, sure. But these booklets were designed to sort of give you an ambiance, a feel of this album that they just put out. Yeah, like a lot of the time it would be photocopies of the handwritten lyrics and stuff like that. You would see little doodles that the artist did on the side or like maybe 
different art that they might have used instead of what's actually on the so or, anyway or pictures of them while they were, while they were writing recording yeah while they were recording yeah. writing or and they would put their thank you notes in also, the yeah, albums yeah. yeah when and you're not gonna find shit like that in wikipedia or shit like that yeah. you know what i'm saying but and, now you're just listening to your old auntie and uncle talking and, about and, music yeah and then specifically now <laughs> Like I, for me, the cool thing was it was almost like I was they were person they were they physically made something something tangible for, you. for me to yeah, have yeah yeah big time yeah and like as well they were anyway I'm getting it's way the off. difference between someone getting a handwritten letter and someone getting a written email yeah yeah that's the difference anyway I I might have to edit a lot of this out we're gonna see Don't. how long it gets <laughs> so anyway geezer butler. Bass player from Sabbath, big fucking magic uh, practitioner, I suppose you'd call it. Yeah. And he says, I'd moved into this flat that I'd painted black with inverted crosses everywhere. Whoa. Sounds fucking cool. Yeah. Ozzy gave me this 16th century book about magic that he'd stolen from somewhere. Wow. How fucking, first of all, how nice of Ozzy to think, oh, I must steal this for geezer. (laughs) Second of all, how fucking cool, a 400 year old book. It had to be from Full a library because he had money to buy anything he wanted. Yeah, or like he could have stolen it like from the fucking Vatican or something. <laughs> anyway, Giza goes on to say, I put it in an <laughs> I put it in the airing cupboard because I wasn't sure about it. Later that night, I woke up and saw this black shadow at the end of the bed. It was a horrible presence that frightened the life out of me. I ran to the airing cupboard to throw the book out, but the book had disappeared. Oh! After that, after that, I gave up all that stuff. It scared me shitless. <gasps> wow! Yeah, right. There you go, kids. Careful what you're getting into. Wow, that's amazing. But like, just everything about that whole story—the the flat with the black walls and the inverted crosses—Ozzy yeah. stealing this fucking. I love Ozzy Osbourne. Like you yeah. know, I love Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. But yeah, I loved his TV show. Yeah, that's me too. Me too. Sharon. Anyway, I actually have a little Ozzy Osbourne doll yeah. in my mom's attic at home. And when you press it, it said, it says, Jared. <laughs> I love <laughs> how he literally never knew what was going on in that show. Yeah, poor guy. Uh, do you know what I actually really like is uh, him and Jack have done like ghost shows together and stuff. Oh, I didn't know they did that together. Yeah, no, well, like just one, uh, like maybe three fucking episodes. I don't know. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, so Sid Vicious. And Nancy Spungen, right? They're both said to haunt the infamous Hotel Chelsea or Chelsea Hotel. Mm-hmm. I've seen it written both ways and I honestly don't know which it is. But this is where Nancy was murdered, supposedly by Sid. He was charged with the murder. But I know that there's a lot of people out there who still think that Sid was um, innocent. So I'm not getting into all that conspiracy and stuff. I'm 90% sure from like the few things that I've seen that, yeah, he blacked out and killed the poor girl. Yeah. Sid was out on bail like four months later when he died of a heroin overdose. This again is, I I haven't even written notes on this, but I remember there was a big, like his mom threw this big party for him in his new girlfriend's house and all this. And apparently his mom actually shot him up and then he died. Uh, But then in his pocket they found a suicide note saying that him and nancy had a a death pact Mm -hmm. and that if she was if she ever died he would go with her kind of thing Mm -hmm. but then they don't know whether somebody just wrote that and and put put it in his pocket pocket because somebody else injected 
so much like controversy over both of these deaths. Yeah. But they were both young. Yeah. People have reported seeing both Sid and Nancy in the elevator of the Hotel Chelsea. Mm-hmm. In room 100, where Nancy was murdered, people have heard mis- a mysterious couple arguing. Someone like the hotel has received complaints of people playing loud music late at night when there's like nobody in the room. Random temperature changes. And as well, people have seen Sid just opening and closing doors. What? Like seemingly at random. Yeah, I don't know. I think the hotel itself used to be a bit of a dive. Mm. So I'm assuming maybe people were probably, you know, hanging out in the staircases trying to score fucking cheap drugs and stuff like that. So maybe it's him trying to find his way back to the hotel room. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, so. That's wild. Yeah. And also the house where Sid died. I don't have the address. I've been there. Um, but yeah, he is also said to haunt there. So who knows? It could just be like New York legend. So where where is the Chelsea? Manhattan. Is it still a dive? No, I don't think so. Like, um, I think it's hard to find a dive. Well, it's not hard to find a dive. It's hard to find dive prices oh. <laughs> in New York nowadays. So moving on again, I know that this is just a lot of different names, but I'm getting to a couple of longer ones. This is another group that I don't really know anything about. Mm-hmm. I texted you earlier because I was like, have you ever listened to these? The Mars Volta, right? Yep. They recorded an album called The Bedlam in Goliath okay. in Ocean Way Studios in Hollywood. I also do love a good Hollywood ghost story. Mm-hmm. There's just something about like a famous ghost or like just, you know, like 1920s Hollywood stories in general. Yes. It's so much extra. But anyway, the Mars Volta... They were trying to, like, gather some inspiration, trying out new techniques, and they decided to experiment with a Ouija board. Oh, come on. Well, I mean, I have mixed feelings. It's an interesting concept. It is an interesting concept, but being from Mexico, they should have known better. Are they Mexican? Yeah, it's a Mexican band. Well, anyway, soon after, and again... Like the, the Black Parade incident, mm-hmm. maybe this stuff is not entirely related, but the drummer left the group, seemingly not in the most amicable of ways. Mm-hmm. The singer Cedric had to relearn how to walk after like some foot surgery. Mm-hmm. Maybe this was pre-planned. I don't know. But it, anyway. Okay. And then the sound engineer had a nervous breakdown saying, quote, I'm not going to help you make this record. You're trying to do something very bad with this record. You're trying to make me crazy and you're trying to make people crazy. After this guy left, the studio flooded. They lost recordings and more bad shit happened. Wow. Eventually, guitarist Omar took the Ouija board, snapped it in half and buried it in some undisclosed location. Interesting. And it stopped. Supposedly. I heard you're supposed to bury it. I've heard that too, yeah. Mm -hmm. That burning it. I mean, it just makes it worse. Mm-hmm. This next one is kind of funny. It's also kind of sweet. Okay, so Mama Cass. Yes. The big lady from the Mamas and the Papas. Yeah. She died. She was actually only 32. I didn't realize she was that young. But yeah. she died of heart failure in, I think, in an apartment in London. Uh-huh. I thought it was a hotel, but earlier on I read apartment, so I'm not yeah. sure. Anyway, God love her. She actually died next to a ham sandwich. I don't know if she was eating the ham sandwich and her heart gave out 
or she had it there beside her for like a late night snack. Maybe she would wake up and eat it. Yeah. Okay. But either way, she didn't have any drugs in her system and her death was ultimately blamed on her obesity. Uh-huh. But anyway, Dan Aykroyd from like all of the movies, but Ghostbusters specifically, he is a huge believer in the paranormal. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's like... Well, he's outspoken about UFOs as well. Major, major Mm -hmm. fucking um, spokesperson for the UFO community. MUFON and shit. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But he actually lives in Mama Cass's old house. No shit. Yeah. Now, she died in London, but this house is in California, I'm pretty sure. And he says, quote, A ghost certainly haunts my house. It once even crawled into bed with me. Oof. The ghost also turns on the stairmaster and moves jewelry across the gr- across the dresser. I'm sure it's Mama Cass because you get the feeling it's a big ghost. Oh, <laughs> but, I love how he just doesn't care though. Yeah, yeah, but it's what she was known for. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, she's like the presence itself seems to be a big warm presence as well. Yeah, it's not like yeah. a scary thing or anything. That's cool. Yeah. So. Moving on to another, well, I've already said they're my fucking favorite, the Foo Fighters. Medicine at Midnight mm-hmm. is their latest album, right? Just came oh, out yeah. in February. Yeah, yeah. I've had it on fucking repeat. Basically. With that Fly Swatter song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a song on there called Cloud Spotter. I heard Fly Swatter the first time I heard it. I know I can't <laughs> unhear it. You, you heard Fly Swatter because I told you it sounds like Fly Swatter. No, we both came up with that. Oh. Anyway, because I was trying to learn how to play it, and I was texting one of the guys back home. I was like, I can't stop saying fly swat. <laughs> and then he said the same thing. He was like, you bastard. <laughs> anyway, Medicine at Midnight, it's their 10th album, and it really is a fucking solid album. But the guys decided to record in this cool 1940s house in Encino, California. Mm-hmm. I would like they have a habit of trying to record something somehow differently. Like one of their albums, they only recorded on tape. One of their albums, they recorded in different famous studios all across the States. You know, like really cool concepts like that. Anyway, Dave said, you know, my mate, Dave Grohl, Mm -hmm. told me personally through NME magazine, quote, (laughs) when we walked into the house in Encino, I knew the vibes were definitely off, but the sound was fucking on. We started working there, and it wasn't long before things started happening. We would come back to the studio the next day, and all of the guitars would be detuned, or the setting we'd put on the board, all of them had gone back down to zero. We would open up a Pro Tools session, and tracks would be missing. Now, all those things could be fairly, like, my guitar goes out of tune, but it's a cheap one. Yeah. You know, but for Dave Grohl to say, like, they have gone way out of tune, you know, like as if someone's been fucking with them. Yeah. And then, you know, yeah, maybe the Pro Tools session, maybe it was just a technical, technical fucking fault or whatever. Yeah. But those boards are physical. Like you have to, because I know that the ones that they, I don't know the names, but I've seen the ones that they use are the old school boards that have been used since like the fucking 50s. Mm -hmm. And you have to physically push up all these different settings and stuff. But the next thing, right? They would open up a Pro Tools session and there would be extra tracks, right? Tracks that they had not put on there. And what, what were on them? They would just be like weird open mic noises. This is a quote from Dave Grohl. Said, he said, they just like weird open mic noises. 
Nobody playing an instrument or anything like that. Just an open mic recording a room. And you know how silent these fucking rooms yeah. are as well. Like, so that, just that's, that. Pfft. That's jarring. Yeah. That's like white noise on yeah, the TV. Right. And of course, the guys had these huge fucking monitor speakers. So they would crank them up to listen to them. Ugh. And he says, quote, and we'd fucking zero in on sounds within that. And we didn't hear any voices or anything really decipherable. But something was happening. Ooh. How fucking gross, right? Yeah. Eventually, he goes home and because they all live in California. So they're not living in this house. They're just yeah. using it. And uh, he goes home and he gets one of his old baby monitors mm-hmm. with the camera on it. Yeah. And he's like, right, we're fucking setting this thing up. <laughs> oh, my God. Brings it in and quote, I set it up overnight so we could see if there was any anyone there or anyone was coming to fuck with us. Yeah. At first, nothing. And right around the time we thought we were ridiculous and we were out of our minds, we started to see things on the Nest Cam that we couldn't explain. Wow. Also, when this started happening, they started digging into the the history of the house. Uh And they found out. It was Sharon Tate's house. No. no. (laughs) They found out what had gone on there. But the landlord was currently trying to sell the house made them sign a fucking non-disclosure agreement form because he knew like obviously they had come up in conversation or whatever and he was like oh no if these guys start talking nobody's gonna buy my fucking house uh, so he made them all sign a non-disclosure agreement so they know what's up with the house they just can't say they know the six of them or how many like extras have been in that house and the engineers and whatever but they're not legally allowed to tell anyone like, they can't even say what they saw on the cameras? Nope. <gasps> Motherfucker. Yeah. He did say that they finished the album as quickly as they possibly could. <laughs> oh, Ooh, man. It must have been bad. Yeah, right? So, and again, it was just that whole general, like, feeling of, like, goose pimples for no fucking reason. Yeah. And just, like, nastiness. I wonder if they went to the bathroom by themselves or if they had to take a buddy. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes when I get scared, I make you go to the bathroom with me. Yeah, that's true. That is true. (laughs) So this isn't the only ghost story Dave Grohl has. Okay. And if you follow, I think my personal Instagram, I don't know if I shared this on the Weekly Creep. A few months ago, I actually posted this video. Mm -hmm. He was in an interview on some like Australian, you know, like daytime TV program. They had played their song and they were having like... Uh, people could call in and ask questions or people in the audience right yeah and so that was i think the station was channel v and he tells how he brought the he bought this brand new house in seattle years ago like well like in the 90s so he was just coming up in money i'm guessing this was nirvana money that bought the house in seattle Mm. because he is from virginia Mm -hmm. right he's not from seattle so i'm assuming he was buying the house to be closer to Kurt and Chris Novoselic and the guys. He wasn't even Dave Gold then. Like, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. He was just the drummer for Nirvana. His first time viewing this house, he says there was this other family there to see it. And the lady from that family fell and broke her ankle on the basement stairs. Mm-hmm. Apparently she was a jerk. His words. Okay. I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, he was thinking, oh, these guys are going to fucking sue and they're gonna get the house <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? like let's fucking go anyway three months later he's bought the house he moves in and he says like it's a pretty big house and he hasn't even got any furniture or anything and for the first little while he's there alone 
he is married at this point. I think maybe she was still living back in Virginia or whatever. I don't honestly know what like the situation was there. But anyway, one of the first nights he's there on his own. He's in bed watching TV. And next thing, the wall behind him just goes boom. And like scares the shit out of him. He gets up, he's looking around outside the house. And he's like, fuck, like maybe like kids came up and like hit the wall or something and ran away. But that was it. He couldn't explain it. So over the next few months, he experiences doors opening during the night, closing randomly. And just this general uneasy feeling, particularly in the basement. Mm -hmm. There's a constant feeling in the basement, which was like a finished basement. I think that's where the sitting room was. And he said it constantly felt like there was somebody just standing right behind you. And anytime he went to walk up the stairs, he felt as if he was being chased. yeah and the way he describes it is like one time he comes like running up the stairs into the kitchen Mm -hmm. and his wife at the time was there and he's like every fucking time i come up that stairs (laughs) but she completely agrees with him yeah and this is the first time either of them have spoken about it she was just too afraid to say anything yeah also like one night they were down in the basement watching tv and their alarm motion detectors are just going off going crazy but nobody's there Mm -hmm. one of their friends even said that any time she was over, this she was doing work in the basement or something. Either way, she was freaked the fuck out. Yeah. Particularly with the basement. Yeah. Eventually, he starts having these dreams. He'd be walking down the hallway in his house and he would see this Native American woman. Hair all over the place, no shoes, dirty dress. And she'd just be staring at him. And when they locked eyes, he would wake up. Mm. Every fucking time. And it was always the same woman in the same outfit. One night they decide to do a Ouija board. Uh, these rock stars, man. <laughs> I know. I think, I don't know whether this was on Halloween night or just another time. He does mention Halloween night in this little interview. I'll post the video as well because it's fucking, if you're a Foo Fighters fan, oh, it's that's a perfect. great video. When the veil is at its thinnest, you play with a Ouija board. Right. So anyway, there's a bunch of people over, including bass player Nate, Nate Mandel. Mandel? Nate. Anyway, people were acting dumb and... He said, like, as Leo, what's my social security number? Oh exactly God. what he said. You know what I mean? Stupid. But just like acting dumb and like, you know, being silly or whatever. Yeah. But then Dave and his ex-wife ask, is there something in the house? The planchette in a, quote, totally fluid movement goes in a circle straight up to yes. Mm. They then ask, did someone die here? It spells murdered. Oof. Were you murdered here? My baby. Why are you here? New house. Are you only downstairs? No. Are you the woman that I see in my dreams? Yes. No. I don't know what happened after this. That's all, It's like a three minute clip randomly that somebody happened to have saved on their fucking TiVo or something that they uploaded on oh my YouTube. God. So like eventually, obviously, they sold the house and moved on right but yeah and he said as well he mentions like he was looking at his ex-wife's fingers at the time he was like is she fucking pushing (laughs) because he knew that she wanted to get out of the house yeah yeah but yeah how fucking creepy is that right that's crazy anyway like i said i'll leave the link to the video below and I'll, i'll try and see if i can post it on instagram or something it might get taken down anyway it's just it's really fucking cool especially if you're a fan of the foo fighters Last one for today. 
but I might end up doing another episode like this in the future. Yes, I hope please so. Please do. So far, these are my favorites. Yeah, right. Like my new favorite. <laughs> so, because like, there's so much shit from like Led Zeppelin and David Bowie Ooh. that I haven't even attempted to touch. Like, you know what I mean? This I got mainly from one source, and I was like, oh, I'll just do this real quick. Yeah. And then as I was doing it, I was remembering all this shit that like, oh, like get this in. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, this might be a part one. But don't expect the next one like next week. Like I'll revisit it sometime in the future. Don't get (laughs) (laughs) my note here says it's like mixing two of my favorite things into one big Reese's peanut butter cup. (laughs) I've got rock and roll and ghost stories. Or Reese's penis. One time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Reese's penis butter cup. (laughs) Okay. Last week I got excited and I was trying to say Reese's peanut butter pieces. And it he just was came so out. excited. He was like, look what I got. Reese's penis. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was showing me the bags. <laughs> it's just look. <laughs> so anyway, we're going. <laughs> you were so sure of yourself. <laughs> Are you done? Can I tell the story? Yeah. <laughs> So this one's going way, way back. And honestly, some of our younger listeners, because I've met guys my own age who have never heard of The Doors. What? Seriously, yeah. Your I age? Was, yeah. So, like, think about it, right? Yeah, well, okay. I was born in 1991. Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, died in 1971. That's the year my dad was born. You yeah, know what I mean? okay. Nobody yeah. else in my family even listened to The Doors. I just... I picked up on like older, random older shit when I was younger. Yeah. So like I'd be at work and I'd be like singing a song or something. I'd be like, oh, I fucking love whatever song by The Doors. And I've had people be like, who? Yeah. And it blows me away. So anyway, The Doors were really fucking big in the 60s. And probably even bigger after, honestly, like after Jim Morrison had died. But he died in Paris on July 3rd, 1971. So next month is actually his 50th anniversary. Oh, wow. Crazy, right? He's oh. been dead twice as long as he was here. And his music still today is getting played. Like. Yeah. That's wild. It, yeah. That, that, you know, you're probably right about him being famous after he's died. Like, I didn't listen to Bowie until after he passed. Yeah. And like that again, I love David Bowie, but I'm not like a deep David Bowie fan. Like, I couldn't tell you. Like... I could tell you the length of songs of Guns N' Roses albums, you know, like B-sides. Uh-huh. But I couldn't do that to David Bowie. I'm very much a paper fan of David Bowie. Mm-hmm. But he's fucking fantastic. Anyway, he is, he is. The Doors I was really big into. And like him or not, Jim Morrison has made a lasting impression on a lot of people. Yeah. Anyway, he had gone to Paris to get clean and try and start over, get rid of this rock star lifestyle that he had. Like, he embodied, like, you know what yeah. I mean? And I'm pretty sure he was not a nice person to be around mm-hmm. either. He was constantly drunk or high. Unfortunately, he couldn't kick his heroin habit and he died. At 27, right? At 27, yeah. In a bathtub in Paris. That sucks, man. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people argue, oh, he didn't die of a heroin overdose. Basically, his heart gave out. Yeah. And regardless he died at 27 in paris in a bathtub you could say it's the heroin 
Yeah. Because if yeah. he didn't have heroin, maybe his heart would have lasted a little longer. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, Raymond Zarek, who is the keyboard player from The Doors, he started having this super vivid reoccurring dream where Jim came back from Paris, all better, full of life, and they would sit and talk and have like, as if me and you having a conversation and Jim would be saying like, oh yeah, you know, we went here and there and like, oh, there's this great little spot in yeah. Paris, like what am I going to Manzarek eventually would say, so hey, have you written any new material? And Jim would start to answer him and just before he starts speaking, Manzarek would wake up in bed. Mm. It was all a dream. He had this over and over and over again. And eventually one day he's on the phone to Robbie Krieger, who is the guitarist. Mm-hmm. Turns out Robbie has been having the exact same dream. Wow. As soon as Jim goes to answer him, boom, he'd wake up in bed. That's so interesting. So weird, right? And while I personally found that crazy interesting, this next bit is genuinely creepy. In do, you 19... maybe, do you think maybe they just really miss their pal? It could have been. Yeah. But either way, for the two of them to have that, you know, yeah, fucking same, same exact... dream. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, in 1997... Rock historian Brett Meisner, he was in Paris and he paid a visit to Père Lachaise Cemetery where Jim Morrison is, bu- is buried. This might seem strange to a lot of people, but honestly, Jim Morrison's grave is literally like a point of pilgrimage for mm-hmm. like not just fans of the doors, but rock fans in general. Like people still to this day go there and just leave little fucking like poetry or like his gravestone has been scraped on like you know people leaving messages for him and stuff like this while meisner is there he gets his picture taken standing beside the, the grave and it's very much just an average middle-aged man standing beside something type of picture yeah you know nothing fucking interesting five years later meisner noticed something in the background huh. i'm thinking maybe what happened was he got all these pictures developed and they sat in a box somewhere or something, you know, and eventually he got them out to start going through them and he sees this. Yeah. I don't know how he didn't see it straight away. Well, I mean, if, if I'm not looking for it, I'm probably not. I'm probably going to miss it. Maybe. No, I'm just saying, like, maybe that's why he did. Yeah, 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 maybe. Like, but either way, five years later and he he eventually notices this, right? Oh, my God. Right. Tell me you're not going to notice that. Yeah. It looks like he's just out there dancing, living his best life. That is like, it gave me chills genuinely when I saw this. Because for one, I do love a good, a good ghost picture. You know what I mean? That I can't say, oh, it's X, Y, or Z. And it's how he always hung out. Leather pants, no shirt. Yeah, it's that classic pose, right? Yeah, and it looks like he's wearing possibly a necklace. (laughs) Yeah. So again, in the background, it is kind of a transparent silhouette that looks so much like Jim Morrison. Yeah, the hair in, too. Yeah, and like there's this famous photo, probably the most famous photo is from this photo shoot and he's there with his arms outstretched, shirtless, almost looks like he's being crucified. Right? That's like the pose, right? Now, Meisner claims that after he visited the grave, his life was plagued with misfortune. Again, it's one of those things. I don't know if it's actually linked, but this guy's convinced it is. His wife left him. One of his close friends died of a drug overdose. And after he noticed this strange picture, 
he tried to get it debunked and he sent it to various experts who could only verify that it was not a trick of the light and it wasn't tampered with. It became a famous ghost picture and ended up in a book called uh, Ghost Caught on Film, too, mm-hmm. actually, I think was what it was called. And soon other people started coming to Meisner, claiming that they, too, are being haunted by the ghost of Jim Morrison for one reason or another. Wow. Now, at first, Meisner thought, like, wow, the, OK, this is pretty cool. But I think he soon grew tired of the whole thing. Yeah. Probably all the strangers showing up at his fucking house, yeah. maybe. But either way, now he says that overall it was an extremely negative experience for him. All of this. I don't know what happened to the picture or anything. But in the Rolling Stone article that I was reading, Mm. they pointed out that Jim Morrison himself had some pretty out there beliefs. And again, it was something I knew that Jim Morrison believed this. I had forgotten all about it. But in this context, it was like, wait, okay. Fair enough. Jim Morrison did a lot of experimenting with, like you said, heroin, acid in particular, and just about every other drug available in his brief 27 years. But ever since he was a child, he believed that the spirit of a Native American chief either passed through him or entered him and stayed there. Hmm. He says, quote, me and my mother and father and a grandmother and grandfather were driving through the desert at dawn and a truckload of Indian workers had either hit another car or I don't know what happened. But there were Indians scattered all over the highway, bleeding. The car pulled up and stops, and that was the first time I tasted fear. I must have been about four, like a child, like a flower just floating in the breeze, man. (laughs) And the thing about looking back is that the souls of those dead Indians were just running around, freaking out, and just leapt into my soul. And they're still there. That's an exact fucking quote. That's so interesting. Right. Yeah. And as I was reading that, I was like, this is lyrics. Like, I have heard this in song, right? Yeah. Indians gathered on Dawn's highway bleeding. It's oh, fucking for me. I was like, oh, this is so good. And there's also the Doors movie, which is super famous. And a lot of people took that. No, to heart, they thought that this movie, Val Kilmer plays Jim Morrison, right? You've seen it, right? And it was the story of the doors, but people took it as like religion. You know what I mean? Everything in this movie happened exactly as this movie played out. Oh. But in the movie, there is this scene of Jim Morrison as a kid pulling up. And the reason why the car stopped was his dad was trying to help all these people. Mm -hmm. And obviously, like they were just, they were too late. So the general belief is anyway, that, Jim Morrison had a gift, I guess, to see what regular people could not. And if you believe in it, he had these, these other spirits, almost like guardian angels, watching over him. But the more drinking and drugging he did, the more he forced this gift out. And so with it, the Native American spirits that are said to have looked over him and guided him left. Interesting. Yeah. And one of the, like, you know, theories. And that's all it is. It's just a fucking theory. Whisper in the wind is that he was given a choice at one stage. Kind of like the old Robert Johnson, you know, sell your soul to the devil kind of thing. Yeah. But it was basically continue living the way you're living. You're going to die. Come with us. We'll protect you. Get away from all this shit. And that was his moving to Paris 
was his attempt at getting clean. I don't know how genuine he was about it because mm-hmm. also like his girlfriend or wife at the time, Paddy, Paddy something, I can't remember her name. She was also a heroin addict. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the two of them were off on this big, beautiful journey to go and get clean. And she died four months later of a heroin overdose in L.A. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's the story of Jim Morrison's thing. And there are whole books written about that specifically his like spiritual side. Yeah. So I'm not like, don't quote me on any of these because I'm not claiming to be a fucking I've just seen the movie and read like a couple of articles. Yeah. But yeah, when I read that quote from like, you know, Indians gathered at Indians scattered all over the highway bleeding. I was like, fuck. What yeah. song was that? He used it in a song on Morrison Hotel, which is where I knew it from. But I think I heard a live version of it. Mm. And he was notorious for making up lyrics and mismatching songs when he was performing live. But it's actually from a song called The Ghost of an American Prayer, which was just Jim Morrison on his own reading his poetry and just being a dick. You can literally hear him unscrewing a whiskey bottle <laughs> as he's talking into the mic. And like some of it is just nonsense ramblings, you know, like Marcus Parks from the last podcast mm-hmm. fucking hates Jim Morrison. Right. Yeah. He's like, I like the doors. Don't get me wrong. But he does not have that like respect for Jim Morrison. He's like, yeah. the snake is long, seven miles, ride the snake yeah. to the ancient lake. That's not lyrics. I think it fucking is. Yeah. Paint a picture. Anyway, so I got yeah. way taken off thing. But there, there's a whole lot of rock star ghost stories. Yeah. Volume one. Yeah. I think, um, I think probably Marcus Park's distaste for Jim Morrison is probably 50% fueled by how everyone loves Jim Morrison. Yeah, I think that could be big time. Because there are a lot of people and it just it just comes to taste, you know, like what people can relate to because I think that there's some rappers out there that are shit that have like the most basic of fucking lyrics and they can't fucking sing to save their lives, but they have a huge fan base that that worship the, them. Because it's whatever the fuck the sim- simplicity of their lyrics, the fucking, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it just hits them right. Like, it hits them right. But it's the same. I'm not a big fan of the Beatles. Yeah. Never have been. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate them. Yeah. I know what they've done. I'm just not that diehard Beatles fan. I, You know, in my opinion, they were the one direction of the 60s. They were. Oh. No, they were. <laughs> they absolutely were. Yeah. But anyway, guys. I hope we didn't go too off topic with that. Real quick before I forget, my sources were iloveclassicrock.com, Loudwire, Rolling Stone, the Chicago Tribune, NME, Channel V, Australia, and I guess YouTube, because I'll, I'll link the video below, but I can't actually remember the ladies or the, the person's channel. But yeah. Join us next week for we're old and talk about music. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's just what I think. The name of that Doors song yeah. that I couldn't remember mm-hmm. um, was Peace Frog. And it is on Morrison Hotel. It was right about the album. But it's such a random little snippet because mm-hmm. it's a relatively fast paced song. And then it kind of breaks down for like a little bridge. And then he says, Indian scattered on Dawn's highway bleeding. So, yeah, that's where I knew it from. But he also, he tells like the whole story in An American Prayer. Oh, okay. 
So now we all know. Right on. Okay, so I guess it's my turn, yeah? Go for it. Go for your life. So my sources are CNN, Judy Roth Kripen, The Sun, Wikipedia, Associated Press, The Road to Imperial Avenue by Tony Brown and Joe Guillen. Trigger warning for child abuse and sexual abuse. So today we're going to be talking about the Cleveland Strangler. Oh. And spoiler alert, for the next two episodes, I'm going to be talking about people from Cleveland, Ohio. Like the Uh, Cleveland steamer. Right. What's that again? (laughs) Is that like a sexual thing? Yeah, don't look it up. Alexa, Google Cleveland steamer. Let's see if that fucks with anyone. (laughs) (laughs) You might be able to hear Max in the background playing with his new toy, but there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. The other person that I'm going to talk about it from Cleveland is going to be on the Patreon. So if you're one of the insiders, you'll hear the second Cleveland person. (laughs) (laughs) And then, (laughs) dude, Max is having a ball with that ball. (laughs) The next episode is going to be someone else from Cleveland, Ohio, which begs the question, Cleveland, what the fuck is going on? What's going on up there? So the Cleveland Strangler was a dude named Anthony Sowell. He was born on August 19, 1959 in, of course, Cleveland, Ohio. And he was raised in 1878 Page Avenue in a lime green house. Oh, what a nice odd detail. (laughs) Anthony Sowell was one of seven children born to a single mother, Claudia Gertrude Garrison. One of Gertrude's daughters had seven children as well, and they moved into the garrison house when their mother, when their own mother died. Leona Davis was Anthony's niece. Leona Davis stated that while she and her siblings lived in that house, Gertrude would physically abuse them while Gertrude's children watched. In one incident, Gertrude forced Davis to strip naked and was whipped with electrical cords until she bled. Jesus. Yeah, she was also tied, like, before she was getting whipped, she was tied with more electrical cords and then whipped. I forgot that one detail. Leona said Anthony was conniving because he would create trouble for her siblings. Anthony would secretly drink his grandmother's Pepsi or start a fight and then blame Leona. Who got punished. Specifically that one child every Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, Anthony would do that. No, no, I mean, he would blame the same child every time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, not just her, but just the other siblings that weren't his own siblings. Oh, okay. Like his nieces and nephews. He would make trouble for them. Anthony and his brothers started raping Davis regularly as soon as Davis turned 10, almost daily. Leona Davis said she tried to report the rapes to authorities, but no one ever believed her. On January 24th, 1978, at age 19, Anthony entered the U.S. Marine Corps and was trained to be an electrician, among other things. The Marines took him everywhere in the world. This fucker went to North Carolina, South Carolina, Okinawa, Japan, and Camp Pendleton in California. So he was actually in, in Oki, as you know, us people in the know call it. No, just you, Adam. <laughs> just you. Anyone no, you else Anyone else that calls it Oki means Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. No, remember that story we just read the other day? Yeah. Okay, well, you and Okinawa. that guy. 
<laughs> well, Devin's in the Marines and he calls it Okie. Right. So he served for a total of seven years. And during that time, he received a good conduct medal with one service star, a sea service deployment ribbon, a certificate of commendation, a meritorious mast, and two letters of appreciation. Wow. He was, yeah. He was honorably discharged on January 18th, 1985. Fun fact, Anthony got married in September of 1981 to a fellow Marine. It was a civil ceremony perver perverted. It was a civil ceremony performed by a magistrate in a historic courthouse in New Bern, North Carolina. He was 22. The woman Anthony married was Kim Yvette Lawson. Lawson's mother said her daughter told her that Anthony was drinking to excess and she supposedly married to help him. That's an... Okay. I know, it's very strange. Yeah. It's, very, it's a very strange detail. Quote, she didn't want him to get a dishonorable discharge. Very weird. She was trying to get him through the Marine Corps and she divorced him the day that he got out. Oh, shit. Okay. Mm -hmm. In 1989, Melvitt Sockwell was three months pregnant when she met Anthony, who to her seemed like a nice guy. He invited her over to his house, and she went. When she felt it was time for her to go, he didn't let her leave. He bound her hands and feet with a belt and a tie and gagged her with a rag. Sockwell later told police, Quote, he choked me real hard because my body started tingling. I thought I was going to die. Anthony was charged with kidnapping, rape, and attempted rape. He pled guilty to the rape charge and served 15 years in prison. Oh, shit. A long time, yeah. Yeah. He was released in 2005. And he moved into a three-story home in a neighborhood called Mount Pleasant. And Sounds he lovely. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Across from that neighborhood was a sausage shop called Ray's Sausage Shop. <laughs> I love this place. Yeah. So just this will come into play later. Right. Anyways, when he got out, he found employment at a factory and he stayed there until 2007 when he decided to sell scrap metal instead and collect unemployment benefits. I should probably note as well at this time is when he wanted to experiment with crack. Oh, like every regular person. You know what? Um, how old is he now? <laughs> uh, let's see, 15 plus 22. So like 37. Yeah. Like I better get this crack thing out of the way before I hit 40. Wait, 26 plus 15? Oh, 40. That's, 41. That's how old he was. So he was already over the yeah. 40. How strange. Very. But the thing is, like, while he was a Marine is when he started boozing real hard. Right, right. Right. And he got away with a lot of shit in the Marines. Um, like, he just was very... I mean, look how he was discharged. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So he obviously was a good Marine. Right. And that's how he got away with... And yeah, and bad drinking problems. And right? his wife was probably helping yeah. him get away with things or maybe helping him not drink. But once she divorced him, he was like, That was it, free. That rain. was it. Yeah, yeah. And he tried to get sober while he was in prison, but he just didn't have the wherewithal. It was like a very ingenuine effort yeah. uh, to stay sober once he got out. 
when he got out, he was like hitting the bottle real hard. And yet he managed to survive for over a year in that other job at, uh, at Ray's Sausage Factory. No, he didn't work at Ray's <laughs> Sausage at a separate factory. I know. I know. Okay. The, I guess the alcohol made him want to try harder things. Yeah, yeah. One which funny enough, funnily enough, alcohol does tend to do sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's like when you can't get drunker anymore. You're like, let's try some harder shit. Let's go in a different direction. Exactly. Let's go straight up. So, <laughs> so yeah. And I thought it was really interesting, like, where I read that he wanted to experiment with crack. Yeah. I'm like, no one ever fucking experiments with crack. They ride that horse till the cows come home. <laughs> and then everything is in shambles. Weed. You experiment with weed. Yeah, maybe acid, <laughs> maybe some pills no, or something like that. No, not acid either. Hell yeah. Shrooms. Yeah. Another thing that he, I guess, did when he got out of prison was he became a member of an online BDSM dating service upon his release from jail. Okay. There he wrote that he was a, quote, master looking for a sub to train. During this time, he began a relationship with Lori Frazier, who was the niece of the Cleveland mayor, Frank G. Jackson. Frazier moved in with Anthony in his home and noticed a weird smell when she lived there. Anthony blamed the smell on his stepmom, who also lived with him at the time. What Frazier didn't know was that their neighbors could smell it too. <laughs> he was just like, that, that, that smelly bitch upstairs. Like, Basically, yeah. Wow. But like, if she would have like asked the neighbors or something, or I don't know how she, I, I'm sure she left the house. And could well, it could be one of those things where you just go like nose blind. May oh yeah, maybe. Like you've been surrounded by a smell so long. Yeah. Like you don't know what your own house smells like. Yeah. When Anthony's stepmom moved out, Frazier was still smelling it. This time he blamed it on the sausage shop across the street. Ah. Okay. And that's what everybody else did in what is it, Mount Pleasant? Yeah, Mount Pleasant. Ray's yeah. sausage shop. <laughs> but Ray's Sausage Shop sounds like a fine establishment. I can't picture a sausage shop smelling that bad. Me neither. I've never been close enough to a sausage factory to smell it. I've never been to a sausage shop specifically, but I've been to butchers that make their own sausages and it smells great. I've been to sausage parties Wait. and abruptly <laughs> left. <laughs> I said, oh, I should have stayed inside today. <laughs> I am in the wrong place. Fun fact. The rotting bodies created an overpowering stench that neighbors blamed on an adjacent sausage factory, which is what we discussed. The, it was Ray's Sausage Shop yeah. that everybody thought it was. The owner of the shop spent $20,000 on new plumbing fixtures and sewer lines because he was like, oh, shit, maybe my shop does smell. Oh, my. All that money he spent didn't make a difference because it wasn't him. Yeah, it was the ex or the stepmom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a stepmom. So she should have, they should have invested that money in creams and lotions and Dental perfumes. Care. <laughs> Old spice. Fragranced oils. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Frazier eventually moved out in 2007, the same time that Anthony quit his job and the same time he decided to experiment oh, with crack. Okay, okay. And she said that. She said that was the reason why she left because he was start he started fucking with crack. That's a totally understandable reason why he would yeah. move out, yeah. Cause like when I was reading one source, it was like he quit his job and she moved out. And I'm like, well, 
cool. She has standards. But this other one was like, no, she said it's because of the crack. And I'm like, cool. So that's a very normal thing. Why didn't the other (laughs) source say that? You know what I mean? It almost kind of like sounded like, oh, she ditched him as soon as he didn't have any money anymore. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm sure he wasn't fucking rolling in it either. But the whole scrap metal gig, though, that's not a... That's like recycling bottles and cans. Pretty much, yeah. But he, like I said, he he was getting by with unemployment. As, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he had some income. In 2009, Anthony invited Latundra Billups to his home for a drink and she accepted. The pair were well into a few drinks and Anthony became extremely angry very suddenly and began to hit Billups. He began choking her, and as she was passing out, he began to rape her. She survived and escaped when she came to. She reported the assault and rape to police. Police went to Anthony's with a warrant for his arrest, but they didn't find him there. What they did find was two dead bodies on his living room floor. Whoa. He was found two days later and arrested. At this time, he was about 50. While he was in custody, police searched the home and found four other women throughout the home, buried in shallowed graves in the basement and in the crawl spaces in the house. The police decided to dig into the backyard and found three more bodies and remains of a fourth. The police, who were still inside the home searching for clues, found a head sitting inside of a bucket, which brought the total number of victims to 11. Just a random head? Yeah. And they couldn't find the rest. Wow. Yeah. And who were the two people that were just on the floor in the living room? Where did they come from? I'll get into that. Okay. It was found that most of the victims died of manual strangulation. Others were gagged or had ligatures on their bodies. Anthony was held on a $60 million bond. And his trial was repeatedly delayed by his defense team in order for them to build a case. The trial finally began on June 6, 2011. Here's what we know about his victims. The first victim that was identified was 53-year-old Tanya Carmichael. She was found on November 5, 2009. She had been missing a whole last year before that. Her body was found in the backyard. The second victim that was identified was 31-year-old Talisha Fordson. She, too, was found on November 5, 2009. She was only reported missing after her family saw the news covering the Sowell case, Anthony Sowell case. Right, right. Just in case you forgot his last name. On November 8th, three more bodies were identified. 38-year-old Crystal Dozer, who was missing since 2007. She had seven children. She had a pattern of going missing, abusing drugs, and a criminal record. When she went missing, her family went to the police, but because they did nothing to try to find her, the family went around posting flyers with her info in the community in hopes of finding her on their own. So I mentioned the drugs and the criminal record because that might have taken, that might have influenced the police's decision to just not do anything about it. Which is really shitty. Yeah, but unfortunately, that is what happens, like, isn't it? Yeah. The next one is 47-year-old Amelda Amy Hunter, a beautician who had three children. 
She did not live in Cleveland, but she visited frequently. She had an arm injury on one of her arms that prevented her from using it. Her family didn't report her missing until they saw that they were removing bodies from, the, from Anthony Sowell's residence. 45-year-old Michelle Mason was next. Uh, she was missing since October 2008. Records show that her disappearance was fully investigated. The other victims were Tashana Culver, 31. Uh, she died in June 2008. LaShonda Long, 25, died August 2008. Nancy Cobbs, 43, died April 2009. Janice Webb, 44 years old, died July 2009. Kimmy Vett Smith, 44 years old, last seen in January 2009. And Diane Turner, 38 died September 2009. Most of the victims were nude from the waist down, strangled with household objects, and had traces of cocaine or depressants in their systems. As a result of all this, the police began to open cold cases of missing persons since 2005, which was the year he was released from prison. The bodies of three women, two of them suspected drug users, turned up near Anthony Sowell's Page Avenue home. So the reason why um, it's important to note that there were drug users is because later on in the trial, the prosecution says that he used this as a lure for um, to get them to the house. To get them to the house, because like he's like, okay, cool, like they use drugs. I know they'll be down to come hang out, and so that's what he did. At the time, Cleveland, Ohio, was like. Well, uh, several cities, but Cleveland also was like crack was everywhere, easily accessible, especially to people who were in poverty. And because because of this and like how I mentioned before, crack is not an experimental drug. You will get addicted as soon as you try it. Yeah. 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 So it makes you do things you otherwise probably would have never done. So that's why this tactic worked so well. For Anthony over and over again and he knew some of these women would do sexual favors had done sexual favors in the past in exchange for drugs yeah he had this mentality going out of prison like when he got out of prison in 2005 that because when he was in there he went through like na which is like a narcotics anonymous but he never completed his steps and he was like, no, I got this. Like, I'll be fine when I get out. And of course, as I mentioned before, he hit that booze real hard and then he started with crack. But in his mind, he was still thinking like, okay, I'm going to start hanging out with these chicks that also like crack. And I'm going to try to get them out of it, even though I'm over here smoking crack. And I, it's like, I'm their saviors. You know, I'm really? going to help them. Yeah. He, he did come out with that mentality. Obviously, he wasn't that. Um, He also had like, like psychologists will later analyze his behavior. In this case, he's like a classic sadistic, psychotic killer. Mm. Um, And because of his short temper, like, and that's what his, the the victims of rape, the ones that survived, that weren't murdered. They said a lot of the same stuff is that he'll be like, fine. You know, they're all hanging out. Cool. And. As soon as they start asking, like, hey, do you have any more drugs? 
then he would get pissed or if he if they asked another question he wasn't cool with or not even that he would just like be cool and the next minute he would be angry yeah yeah and would attack them in may 1988 the body of 36 year old rosalind garner was found in her home on hayden avenue she had been strangled Carmela Karen Pratter, 27, a resident of Page Avenue and a suspected drug user, was found in an abandoned home on First Avenue, just off Hayden, on February 27, 1989. Cause of death is unknown. A month later, on March 28, the body of another suspected drug user, Mary Thomas, age 27, was found near an, ab- an abandoned building again on First Avenue. No link was made, but they did link him to a couple attempted rapes. On July 22, 1989, Anthony met a woman at a hotel at Euclid Avenue and Lee Road, the woman told police. The woman, who has a criminal record of drug use, feared police who had arrived at the motel might arrest her. So she just kept it quiet, kept it to herself. Anthony Sowell told her that her boyfriend was waiting for her at Sowell's house about 500 yards away, the police report says. The boyfriend wasn't at Anthony Sowell's house, the woman told police, but a bed was. He threw her on it, choked and raped her over and over. When she tried to leave, Anthony bound her hands with a necktie, cinched a belt around her feet, and stuffed a rag in her mouth, the woman said. Then Anthony Sowell, who had been drinking, fell asleep. She wriggled free and escaped out of a third-story window. Fucking hell. Yeah. Anyways. And this was, when was this? Uh, this particular incident happened in 89. Wow. Yeah. So this was, um, this, was one, this was before he went to prison yeah. for that rape case. It's crazy to think that he escalated so far, like rapidly, because he was like, as soon as he got out, he was like, I'm going to rape and kill women. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's the only way that I won't get caught, maybe you just think, you know. And these survivors of rape, like, they're like, I'm pretty sure they're like all screwed up because of the rape. But to see the women that he actually killed, yeah, that's gotta that add more something else, yeah. That has to add more fuel to the fire. Anthony Sal was charged with eleven counts of aggravated murder and seventy-four counts of rape kidnapping tampering with evidence and abuse of a corpse i'm guessing because of the head yeah he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity but later changed his plea to not guilty his ex-girlfriend laurie frazier remember laurie frazier the mayor's niece correct was called as a witness when frazier testified against anthony she said she saw numerous injuries around his head and neck after they broke up she still stayed in contact with him a year after she moved out. She testifies that she saw holes in the walls of Anthony's house and blood on the floors and walls. Frazier also recalled that during visits, she noticed that a third floor room was locked and off limits. She believes she also may have seen evidence of encounters of those who fought back and escaped. Frazier said she remembered seeing a deep gash across Anthony's head and blood on the floor and walls, which he claimed to be the result of a fight with an intruder. Recalling one incident, Frazier told jurors he had a gash on his head. Whoever hit him, hit him with his ashtray. 
Judge Dick Ambrose announced the decision after a 45-minute analysis of Anthony Salvo's crimes of guilty. I mean, in the ex-girlfriend's defense, I've been in houses before, like just belonging or where people that just had bad habits lived, you know what I mean? Like party houses and stuff like that. Yeah. So if this guy was smoking crack every day and I started seeing holes in the wall and blood and stuff like that, I wouldn't even probably think twice about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. What's weird is how did he have a relationship with this woman? Like a two, like compartmentalized. Is that the word? I guess. How he compartmental, how he separated these two parts of his life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how was he able to execute a relationship for even that long? Two years. But I, I think that's a whole part of the, like, true fucking psychopath thing, though, right? Or sociopath thing. Like, he can but have he that But he wasn't level. a sociopath. He was a psychopath because he couldn't control his impulses. So how was he able to control not killing Lori? Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Sociopaths can control. Can control, yeah, yeah. I don't fucking know. I'm not a psychologist. So crazy to me. I just talk into a microphone (laughs) and some people listen. (laughs) (laughs) Once Judge Dick Ambrose told the court that he found Anthony Sowell guilty, Anthony Sowell just slumped back in his chair without emotion as the judge kept prattling on about what else. Mm hmm. About the sentencing. On July 22nd, 2011, Sal was convicted on all the charges except two. Sal was sentenced to death on August 10th, 2011. The date for his execution was set for October 12th, 2012, but kept changing due to the appeals made by his new lawyers to the Ohio Supreme Court. The reason for them pushing to overturn the sentencing was because Anthony's original representation did a piss poor job by suggesting Anthony plead not guilty and because the extensive media coverage that the case got influenced the outcome of the trial through the jurors and the courtroom was closed to the public during the hearing and while the jury was picked, which seems like such a dumb reason, the Mm. last one especially. The state argued that if Anthony's Sixth Amendment right was violated via the closed pretrial suppression hearing, it would not have affected the outcome of the trial, as the evidence was overwhelming, and that Anthony's attorneys were the ones who asked multiple times in his presence for the jury selection to be done privately without cameras in the courtroom. The state also asserted that Anthony has never denied his guilt and that the heinous nature of his crimes, coupled with little mitigating evidence to deny imposing the death penalty, warrants affirming the death sentence. On December 8, 2016, the Ohio Supreme Court rejected an appeal for Anthony, affirming his aggravated murder convictions and death sentence. In May 2017, he appealed again to the U.S. Supreme Court, And in October, they chose not to hear him. In February 2018, the Ohio Supreme Court denied another request to reopen his appeal. In May 2020, the state of Ohio's 8th District Appellate Court denied his appeal. So he just kept appealing, appealing to just anywhere. And everybody was like, we're not going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. On January 21st, 
2021, he began receiving end-of-life care at the Franklin Medical Center for terminal illness. He died on February 8th in, Colum in Columbus, Ohio. So now it didn't make sense to me before, but it makes a whole lot of sense to me now. I don't think this motherfucker wanted to be executed, which is why he kept throwing appeals and appeals yeah, and appeals. Yeah. Because every time he did that, they kept moving his date of, of execution. Course, yeah. And they, I don't know if anybody was able to catch on because they're like different uh, levels of mm -hmm. uh, judicial systems. But I bet if he just kept doing it with the same court, they would have probably saw right through it and would have been like, okay, no more appeals for you. This is a date we're going to kill you. Yeah, but even like the fact that it was, he was, uh, the date was set for only a year after the initial sentence date. Like, yeah, no, everybody wanted him dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and everybody thought that he deserved death, which, you know, I. I, I I don't care if anybody hears I am for the death penalty. I just feel like some people aren't don't have souls. I feel like they are just, just garbage people. people. Yeah. Um and interestingly enough, my last story, I think it was only last week, uh James Ruppert was also in Ohio, Hamilton, Ohio, mm -hmm. and he is currently alive in Cleveland. The, in the Franklin Medical Watchmacaller. Oh, is he? Is I think he? so, yeah. It certainly seems familiar, so it's ringing my bell. Anyways, in his last days, he like wrote letters to different source, like uh, sources of media that would hear him about how big of a dick he thought Dick Ambrose was, the judge. <laughs> and, you know, like because this case was so famous, they're like, sure, we'll fucking run with this, even though he's a piece of shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Anthony Sowell's home was demolished in December of 2011. This was a decision made by Blaine Griffin, executive director of the Cleveland Community Relations Board, to help the community and the family of the victims move on and heal. In a letter to Sowell's victim's family, he wrote, in order to prevent actions that would be disrespectful to the memory of your loved ones, your family, and our community, the demolition will be performed in such a way that no piece of the property will remain. So if you're wondering if you can visit that home, you cannot. Yeah. And that's my story. That's insane. Like the fact that they, in a, an all logically, logical thinking world. Yeah. They still go, we better tear that house down. Yeah. You know, like I know obviously it's not done out of a, oh, I'm afraid of ghosts, but like out of it becoming a tourist attraction, even if it's left abandoned. Yeah. People like us would show up. Well, people knew what it was. Yeah. Yeah. They knew what it was. It's like the Amityville horror. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I should probably note that the next, the other name that he was known by was the Imperial Avenue Strangler, which he was because I think. Those strangulations were happening, like the murders in that area. Remember I was telling you that they were trying to link him with other... Yeah, yeah. They thought that he was... Responsible for all of these Yeah, murders. so he is the Imperial Avenue Strangler. Okay. That's what his other name is. That's what they're connecting him to. They're suspecting that that is him. So yeah, if yeah. you Google that, he will He'll show up. up. Right on. Well, thank you very much for that horrific story. Yeah, no problem. I just figured I'd be the Debbie Downer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was interesting. I had heard of him before, but I didn't know all those details. Oh, really? I'd never yeah. heard of the guy. Yeah. That's why I picked him, because I never heard of him. <laughs> yeah, I do the same thing.
All right. Thank you very much. Well, this has been another pleasant week of misery. <laughs> now, we had some nice ghost stories, nice true crime mixed in there. Make sure to tune back in next week for some more. Uh, if you would like to join our Patreon, follow the link in our link tree because I still don't know. It was fixed the other day that you could just Google Weekly Creep and we would show up. But then one of my friends said that they couldn't find us on there. So I honestly don't know. So follow the link through our link tree. Also check out our new blog channel. It's just called Adam and Dulce on YouTube. Uh, we're just trying to have some fun with it, really. It's just a silly thing. It's not necessarily creepy or anything. But do check it out. Subscribe. Even if you're not going to watch it, just subscribe for us so you can build up some numbers. And what else is there? If you have any spooky stories, close encounter stories, cryptid stories any fucking strange experiences please write it out or send us a voice message do whatever the fuck you want send it to weeklycreep at gmail.com and we will read it out on next month's titillating tales of true terror which comes out on the first of every month follow us on facebook instagram twitter youtube adam and dulce or weekly creep on there or both and yeah yeah that's that, pretty much that about it covers it right mm-hmm Okay, I gotta edit this now because it comes out in seven hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. Bye.